Coming to you live from Austin, Texas and the Queen City in North Carolina, this is the Good Faith Podcast for the month of July 2021. This month, Ted Cruz gets caught wearing Nike two years after swearing off the brand. Fox and Friends comes out swinging against Christians. A passenger on a flight from Dallas to Charlotte had a flight attendant bit by an unruly passenger who tried to open the boarding door. Texans catch the monkeypox. How you doing there, buddy? Brazilian President Balancero was bitten by a rea while in quarantine for the coronavirus. A QAnon conference creates modern butthole art with Trump as the dead-eyed center. And Ben and Jerry's no longer sells ice cream in the West Bank in East Jerusalem, creating a lucrative opening for enterprising individuals. Carl, have you bought your Freedom Phone yet? I have not bought my Freedom Phone yet. Uh, what What is the... What business offering does the Freedom Phone provide that my, you know, I don't know, five-year-old phone doesn't? Well, for 500 bucks, you will be blessed with a phone you can buy on AliExpress for 120 US dollars. Which, okay, fine. Maybe there's, you know, something extra to it. It comes pre-installed with Parler, a YouTube alternative, things like that. But it's being billed by Eric Finman as a censorship-free privacy phone. Fine, right? Let the market work. Except this is, by all accounts, no such thing. The processor in this which the phone is a Umidigi A9 Pro. The processor is from a company called MediaTek, not Tech, C-H, Tech with a K, uh, that is favored by the North Korean government so they can install surveillance backdoors on people in their country who have the phones. So this phone is, to put it another way, is popular with one of the most isolated and repressive dictatorships in East Asia. Yeah, 100%. Hmm. And how much was the markup on this phone from its, you know, base price? You said it was, what, worth 120 and selling for... A cool 500. A cool 500, and it's a freedom phone? Extra 380 bucks for Parler pre-installed. I wonder if it... There's got to be something... In that three hundred and eighty dollars, that makes it worth the five hundred. Like, is it like, is it one twenty, and then the former president Donald Trump just licks the phone, and then that's where the extra added value comes in? Like, what's the? What, there's got to be some sort of. Uh, there's got to be some sort of opportunity, for example, for me to get in and then say, well, I can sell you the Freedom Phone V two for four hundred and eighty dollars rather sure. than five hundred. Mm-hmm. and you know, make a quick buck off of that and take away some of Candace Owens' business. Well, it's, Candace Owens is just hawking this thing, and she decided to hawk it uh, on Instagram and tweeted about the experience, said it was great, the phone works wonderfully, and the tweet shows she sent it from her iPhone. Oh, oops. So I don't... Yeah, so it's it's really hard to tell if anyone's actually using this thing. And and to, to answer your question about um, where does that $380 markup come from, I think the secret ingredient is grift. Oh, that would make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So Finman is, he bills himself as the youngest cryptocurrency millionaire. Oh God, no, nope, nope, already over. I'm, I'm done. Cancel, mm-hmm. cancel all my phone subscriptions. I <clears throat> cancel everything. I, I'm, I'm over it. As soon as you mention youngest <laughs> cryptocurrency, Billy, you know, zillionaire, whatever. I'm done. I'm out. Uh, it, I, I don't, I, I don't know how many of these are gonna sell. Uh, it's, and he, his, he's saying, you know, nothing's made in China. It's all made in Hong Kong. Except they're made in a Chinese city near Hong Kong. Oh, they're so it's like it's it's in the province that's around Hong Kong, like in that general vicinity. It's uh, located in Shenzhen. Oh, Shenzhen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, and you know, reporters have been obviously jumping on this because it is insane, which is why we're talking about it, and. Uh, Umi Digi, who is making the phone, uh, did not respond about if the phone was made in Hong Kong or if it was made where their headquarters is in Shenzhen or or where. So who knows? I mean, the spec sheet on their website doesn't even tell you how big the battery is. On the well, Freedom From website, that is. That's because half the battery, you know, is a listening device. Because <laughs> didn't we just go through this whole thing with TikTok about how there's... If someone went into the background code of TikTok and found out that, oh, hey, there's a backdoor that companies in China could use to download your data, and these companies have connections with the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, there's yep. there's all, <laughs> all sorts of that going on. So it's, uh, oh, that's horrifying. It is. It really is. So this is being unleashed on uh, the conservosphere, the, the super conservosphere. Uh, I mean, we're talking Candace Owens, Roger Stone, Dinesh D'Souza, Alexander Ali, um, who's really good friends with Jack, who runs Twitter, um, which is its own sort of concerning relationship. Um, so this is fine for people that are worried about their uh, their privacy and security online and definitely not being listened to by a country and government that they profess to oppose. Well, the safest way to store all your data is just to switch to a rotary phone. You're not wrong. I, I'm, I'm telling you, if you really, if you really want to uh, secure your privacy, just get, pick up the old rotary phone and just drag it around with you, cord and all. You're, you will not have your data hacked on your rotary phone. Yeah, unless the feds get a warrant and you know tap in, but well, yeah, but you need a you need a, a, a warrant for that first. Sure, 100%. it's not like it's not like North Korea can just you know click a button and like oop, all your data just pops up, or you know you'll be like that. Wasn't there a there was a Chinese billionaire who was sentenced this month too uh, for it was something ridiculous, it was something like being quarrelsome in public, and he got eighteen years for that, but it was really just you know the. Chinese Communist Party thought he was a, a dangerous threat because he was a billionaire in tech. Oh yeah, picking quarrels and provoking troubles. <laughs> How poetic! He got eighteen years in prison for that. Wow, and uh, I think it's also uh, AliExpress, which is which is probably where Finman is buying this phone from, is having yes. all their assets and divisions divvied up and split up. Oh, he was also into this guy who was arrested. Uh, 
son, and then I can't pronounce his well last name, D-A-W-U. Um, so some of our Chinese uh, uh, fluent listeners may be able to help me out with that. But he was owned a agricultural and animal husbandry uh, farming operation in China. And uh, he was famous for being an outspoken critic of China's ruling Communist Party. So, I don't know. It just, all, all, all the things, things with that and Alibaba and then now Freedom Phones. It's just, there's this whole thing about how we're going to get tough on China. And the way we're going to get tough on China is buying their highly marked up phone products. Oh, the, no, the markup was coming from the Americans. Well, there you go. Exactly. It's our freedom tax for our freedom phones, question mark? Yeah, but we hate taxes. Uh, we'll just convert it to rents then. There you go. The landlord, <laughs> when, you, when, you, uh, when you pay a markup, you're just paying the landlord. You absolutely are. So, uh, do how do you want to... <laughs> Speaking of marking things up and spying on people, how do you how do you want to go about and explain the uh, the propose the a modest proposal from Tucker Carlson and Matt Welsh this month about oh how to tackle oh. things like uh, I don't know like critical race theory and things like that. I'll I'll put it simply: Tucker Carlson and Matt Walsh want to watch your children. All day. And if you don't have kids, they want to watch other people's kids. They just want to watch them. Make sure they're not doing anything, you know, naughty. And what did they come up with good justifications for what this is about? Like, why did, why are they suddenly interested in watching your children? Well, it's everybody's uh, favorite discourse from this year. Uh, and probably for the end of time, the eternal chitter-chatter about critical race theory. Oh, okay. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. favorite pastime is just chatting about critical race theory. If there's one thing that grade school children are learning, it is critical race theory. And how laws in the past may have been a little racist. Or like... My and my vague understanding of critical race theory, and I apologize to anyone in our audience who actually knows the inner workings of it, is that my understanding is that at its simplest, most benign level, and then you can argue about what it means above that, is that that the lens of race has been used in the past and shapes laws and institutions in this country and in multiple countries that the lens of race and people's racial identification has had an influence on American institutions. Like if you just take an American perspective, that is what I understand is that it's at the most basic level and everything after that is just a huge firestorm. The, the, the problem that conservatives have had with it is that they uh, are they see it as those those dirty leftists calling conservatives racist and that these things that they believe in are racist and these things they're proud of uh, are racist and uh, like that's a, some sort of personal attack 
like Robert E. Lee was racist and Jefferson Davis was racist and we can't have their statues around anymore and they're mad about that. I don't know if you saw that tweet this month, but it was something along the lines of, uh, <laughs> I can't remember if it was a member of Congress right now or if it was someone else on Twitter said something along the lines of, you know, the left hates American patriots and calls you know Robert E. Lee a traitor. And I was like, well, I hate to break the news to you, but uh-huh. it just so happens that some of these people in the American Civil War decided that they would rebel against the U.S. government and waging war against the U.S. government, according to our Constitution, is defined as treason. So, it's just so close. It's so close to the right answer. But, yes, that is true, is that there are some lions of American history. I don't know if you would... if they deserve to be lions in the first place, these particular individuals, but it starts there. They're well-known. They're well-known. And sometimes that criticism peters off into uh, America's founding fathers as saying that they were also terrible people. And I think in retrospect, some of them were less uh, good personal characters than others. Like, did you ever... This one really gets me. It's just like, I don't understand. I don't understand this. So, and again, I apologize to people in the audience because I I just think this is so fascinating. Like Thomas Jefferson, wonderful stylist, gave us one of the most beautiful phrases in uh, modern enlightenment and, you know, modern liberal thinking in the terms of all men are created equal. Fantastic stylist, good philosopher, actually decent president really terrible person like Mm -hmm. really bizarre character flaws like indescribable stuff that i'm not going to go into in this podcast but you know like having children out of wedlock with his slave who was actually related to his sister's family it was or his sister no his wife or his sister's family it's there's some bad stuff in there um he also tried to he also tried to make an edited version of the Bible because he thought the Bible was too long. And then he was just like, you know what? The Bible is too long. I'm gonna edit out all this stuff and I'm just gonna make my own version. I'm just like, come on. Well oh he didn't God. he didn't try. He did it. He did it with a razor and he cut out all the miracles. He cut out all the miracles. I, 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 hand to God. Just, yeah. Jefferson's just such a weird character. So like so there are like on a personal level, some of these people are, uh, are very interesting. Like Ben Franklin could lay pipe. Ben Franklin was just all about the ladies. But again, yes, we had um, like one of our founding fathers actually was looked like a pirate. Like Governor Morris, he had an eye patch and a peg leg. Did he really? He did. It is really funny. <laughs> but you know, so. People in the 18th century, not like the shining uh, moral examples. And so some of these people decide that then, okay, we're just going to, there's a radical position which takes that we're just going to be iconoclasts for everything, which is probably where the conservative mindset goes. But then, of course, you could fashion nice defenses of certain aspects of the founding fathers or other people in America's founding generation. But 
I don't think the rational response is we need to set up spy cameras in every single American classroom and watch our children. The real, the real fun part. So for Matt Walsh, someone had posted screenshots of two tweets of his. The second one was the, we should have a camera in every classroom uh, to watch your children. And the first one is from February 21st, 2020. So not that long ago where he says your child's most intimate and personal moments, whether sad or happy, do not need to be filmed and posted online for public consumption. Let your children have a personal life. Let them have privacy. You have no right to take that from them. Not everything has to be a spectacle. For real. And then earlier in July of this year, there should be a camera in every classroom and any parent should be able to access the footage whenever they want <laughs> to find out exactly what teachers are doing and saying to their kids. God, can you imagine being a parent and being like, thank God I got through high school. That was such not a great period of my life. Or if it was, I've had so much, so many better things. And then going back and reliving high school all over again. Mm. Ugh. Terrible. So these are these are big thinkers on the right. Uh, Tucker, of course, has a primetime um, loony bin hour where he gets to say whatever he wants, like watching kids all day. So these aren't just people on the street yelling crazy things. These are fairly well-respected. People in news studios yelling <laughs> crazy things. People that uh, other people... Uh, listen to and base their worldviews on he has not been great in helping tucker yes i was just about to finish my sentence he has Mm. not been great in the vaccine discourse either so no 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 uh pretty much any discourse but that's what happens when you're um when your brain is raised on frozen fish yeah, and uh, really small bow, bow ties, which probably throttled the blood supply to your brain. So I say that as a bow tie, bow tie enthusiast. I could tell that Tucker Carlson just... Eh, tied him a little too tight? Tied him a little too tight and a little too early. Mm. So, speaking of which, what about your favorite congressional delegate from North Carolina? Do you want to talk it, about Ma- NC eleven Madison Cawthorn? Yep. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I'll. I'll talk about. Cawthorn have we actually covered Madison Cawthorn at all? I don't think we have on this podcast yet. So, do you want to? We have not. He has been a real treat. So, <clears throat> Cawthorn is a freshman congressman from NC eleven. He beat Colonel retired Colonel Mo Davis, who was the chief prosecutor at Guantanamo Bay for a period. Uh, and has in, on he's very critical of Cawthorn on Twitter still because uh, I guess that's what you do when you're uh, an old man with the internet you yell at the clouds like Chuck uh, Grassley yeah. which who has pretty, a has a pretty like entertaining Twitter account I think so, so, this is Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa mm-hmm. whereas whereas Chuck Grassley is going hey I found your pigeon uh, and anyone you know can can we help find out who owns this uh, Mo <laughs> Davis is saying that Cawthorn is more guilty of crimes against the United States than everybody in Guantanamo. 
Oh boy. So <laughs> what's the background information on Madison Cawthon? Like how old is he? What is he like? What's before we do that, before we launch into his stellar congressional career. He is a youngin. How old is he? I want to say 25. Nope, 26. That's horrifying. I I am Oh. As we record this, this is his birthday, August 1st. Happy birthday, Madison Cawthorn, for North Carolina's 11th Congressional District. Uh, reach out, buddy. Reach out. Uh, we won't respond. Has... <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he made a splash for, um, well, really one of the foundational aspects of him being in Congress is he did not hire staff to foment policy or to pass policy or to even think about policy. He hired pretty much all of his staff, and he's admitted this, just as comms people to make liberals mad. Okay. Okay. Pretty, okay, fine. Pretty standard stuff, but kind of crazy for a congressman, but it happens. Fine. Um, there's a very entertaining video of him punching a rotting tree, <laughs> uh, which if you haven't seen, you must. It's pretty great. It's his uh, response he, to the Green New Deal. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, he is also famous for uh, getting into a... his. Uh, he was in a car accident where his friend was driving, and he is now wheelchair-bound, and he is suing his friend for millions of dollars. Currently? That. Uh-huh. That's ongoing litigation? Uh, or it closed up recently. It was, it was oh. uh, still fairly fresh when he was running. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Uh, he tried to bring a handgun on a plane back in this February. Which a, is a loaded, a loaded like, Glock nine millimeter, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm, is actually mm-hmm. definitely illegal. <laughs> like definitely oh, oh. post Patriot Act, and definitely even pre Patriot Act. That was illegal. Oh, it's something like a ten thousand dollar fine just for being in an airport with a gun, with a loaded, loaded gun. No, either. Or. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but a. Uh, Oh gosh, I forget the organization. Some organization found the um, they did a Freedom of Information Act request and found the uh, the TSA write up that basically said, "Here's the stuff we found." Whoopsie. Mm-hmm. I'm so I'm so sad that it didn't appear on TSA's Instagram because they have a rocking Instagram. I, I can I encourage everyone who listens to this to follow T- the TSA Instagram page. It's already bad enough. I follow the. Uh, Consumer Protection Agency on Twitter. Also, a great banger of a social media outlet right there that they have. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, the TSA once actually had a, honest to God, they had a picture of someone who tried to smuggle a bag. It, it was it was like a very heavy plastic bag with 10 Floridian eels in it. What? Oh, yeah. There, someone tried to smuggle eels on a plane from Florida, and they just posted this bag and saying that you know how shocking. It's, oh, it's so such a good pun. Uh, but anyway, yes, I I encourage I encourage you to follow TSA just because of the crazy stuff that people try to bring on airplanes. But yes, don't bring guns on. You know, life advice from the Good Face po- Good Faith Podcast. Do not bring guns on planes. The only way to do it is to put it in your checked bag. Mm-hmm. And you, I believe you still have to tell the gate agent that you have one and they fill out paperwork and verify it's there. And then 
it's it's an easy trick if you never want your luggage to be misplaced is to have a something that qualifies as a registered firearm in there. Oh. So I've heard uh, photographers will do this. Uh, furries with their fursuits. They'll put like the lower receiver of an AR-15 in there. So it's not an actual gun. It's just the part that's registered, but it still qualifies as a gun for, for flying. Uh, oh, yeah. Because let's say you have several many thousands of dollars in equipment or fursuits and you don't want it lost or mishandled, no one's going to lose a gun. No one wants that liability. No one is going to lose a fursuit ever again. Pro tip. Pro tip yeah. from the furry community. Just we're going to pass that buck on to you. So anyway, so the, <laughs> so the esteemed congressional delegate from NC11 has a... Mm-hmm very vast history didn't he also have an interesting prehistory before he was elected to oh you mean like the college he went to and failed out of that makes liberty university look like an ivy league oh that's right which one Uh, was that i man there's so many of these little mountain colleges i couldn't tell you but there's that one and then uh, did we mention the fact that (laughs) wasn't this whole thing about how he went to germany had Instagram right, pictures. he went to he went to Hitler's vacation house at the Eagle's Nest, and uh, made an Instagram post about this, and super like smiling and happy, and was talking about in the caption about how going to this place was on his bucket list, which to you could you, the most charitable you could be is that he's a history enthusiast. Uh, the, the, the least charitable is that he idolizes Hitler and he, the only reason he went to the Eagle's nest as it was on his bucket list is because the, uh, infamous bunker is now a parking lot in Berlin. The only time I support inner city parking is in that instance is paving (laughs) over Hitler's bunker. And, and also, also to be fair to representative Cawthorn, the TSA has seized twice as many guns from travelers in 2020 as it did the year before. Uh, huh. So even even during the pandemic, more people are are forgetting, I suppose, or uh, I. Who knows, right? Uh, his excuse for this is that he was using his carry on was his also his range bag, and he forgot he had a loaded gun in there in his I, range bag. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. It's, yeah, he just took his range bag as his carry-on, which I'm sure he goes shooting in DC, and you know that's that's within his right. But that's the kind of thing you check. I still think the craziest thing is the punching tree one, punching the rotted tree. I I, I still I still think that is, that's that's peak crazy. Oh, with like gloves and everything. It's not not like you know boxing gloves, but like. You know, ones that protect your knuckles and stuff. I guess if we can do some bare bare knuckles uh, brawling uh, with people, you would also use these for punching a tree and post the video for everybody, the whole world, forever to see. That's, um... Mm. Wonderful stuff coming out of Cal- <laughs> North Carolina. <laughs> they're, uh, they're well represented up there in the mountains. I'm sure they are. Carl, we have to talk about the MILF mobile. 
Okay. I. So last month, we covered an icon of American freedom, which was the Flintstone House. This month, ladies and gentlemen, we have to talk about the MILF mobile. So, this is an article that was from The Intercept from earlier this month, which was, quote, a nation conceived in liberty confronts its queasiness with the, quote, MILF mobile. A new law banning, quote unquote, vulgar vanity plates sets the stage for a free speech showdown in the Pine Tree State, which is our love, the lovely citizens of Maine and Stephen King and Covered Bridges, which feature extensively in horror movies and Lobster. So, Brittany Gilden drive Brittany Gilden, that's apparently her name, drives Maine's most beloved vehicle, a 2013 teal Chrysler Town and Country minivan. Okay, didn't know they still made vehicles in teal. I did not know they made vehicles in teal either. Good for Chrysler. A enormous custom-made quote MILF mobile logo is plastered on its rear windshield, and MILF, of course, means my. But we're not going to get there. Uh, <laughs> this is a family podcast. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, Gildan quote: Everyone loves my van except for Karens. Karens hate it. <sighs> I love her. She also rides uh, and sports on this minivan uh quote kids in this bitch honk one falls out (laughs) quote another sticker if you're gonna ride my ass at least pull my hair (laughs) but the the problem that the, the the great state of maine with their inferior portland is the vanity plate her specific vanity plate which quote is tits out yeah vulgar uh let's see the plate references the fact that i exclusively breastfed all four of my children okay then it dives a little crazier quote and that i frequently drive topless okay (laughs) maine is in fact a topless state i'm not was not aware of that but okay (laughs) hey they still have a, a ways to go uh you know uh before they're hitting San Francisco levels where you can also be bottomless. Mm, Yeah, you can be fully publicly nude in San Francisco. I don't know what you're doing, San Francisco. You worry me. Uh, So in January uh, 2021, 2021, and January 19th, a new bill aimed at banning, quote, vulgar and obscene vanity plates was introduced by Local tyrant Senator William Diamond, a Democrat from Windham, Maine, previously served as Maine's Secretary of State during the Vanity Plate Program's creation in 1989. So this is also something I looked up too. Vanity plates were, in some cases, relatively recent for a lot of states. Hmm. So for example, in Maine, 1989, that was not a long time ago when people started making vanity plates. Uh, So... We're going to keep scrolling down here. So there are 420 plates are currently vulgar enough to be banned. Examples include thinly veiled profanities, um, online acronyms, and uh, a whole bunch of other things, which finally the state has caught up to what people text each other. So like, 
OMG STFU <laughs> is also another vanity plate that's banned. I just find that hilarious. And then let's see. So our our good MILF, MILF mobile owner is trying to fight this legislation before it is adopted. And it's it's wonderful. I hope this bill fails because we should have the freedom to have vanity plates for to serve all sorts of individuals. If we can have people build, you know, large sculptures of Flintstone characters in their front yard, we definitely need a license plate in America which says tits out. This just seems very cut and dry. First Amendment, let her have her tits out plate. Mm-hmm. Plus, you're going to have, you're going to take exception with the plate, but you're still going to have, theoretically, things you object to on the car itself. Right. So you're going to ban the plate, but keep the stickers. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mm-hmm. stickers are even more entertaining to, in my mind. Oh, sure. So, quote, uh, Gildan says, I won't be giving my plate back, and neither were most Mainers. Quote, the MILF-mobile will never be canceled. So, Brittany, if you're out there, we have an invitation to extend to you to come onto this podcast to describe your fight to protect vanity plates in Maine. Please, please, God, please listen to this. We now, for more, be in your debt. <laughs> for more vanity plate fun, LA Mag has a city think blog with rejected vanity plates. They have the applicant explanation, the DMV comments and the verdict. So there's one that is DCK XTSN. The applicant's explanation is I'm the extension of my dad. My dad's name is Dick and I was named after him. DMV comments, Dick extension. Customer's name is Brant. Verdict. No. <laughs> Uh, there's one that is hot in SXE explanation. Myself being a middle-aged woman, DMV comments, hot and sexy verdict. Yes. <laughs> uh, another, and some of these just don't make any sense. They're fun. F S H ball explanation, fish ball. DMV comments, fish, ball, some sort of sexual verdict? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's delightful. So I would highly recommend going for that. It pops right up. Uh, Californians, Lord, they try. Lord, they try. And maybe these people who are in charge of that DMV don't have access to the internet. And so they're just very, very desperately <laughs> confused. So they're like... A teenager Googling a word for the first time. It's like, what does this one mean? Like, what is a MILF? And then you had to look it up and go, oh, no. Oh, so like how I played Cards Against Humanity with a bunch of people for whom English was not their first language? Oh, that's going to be interesting. It was. It was a Christmas Eve party. Mm, how'd that turn out? Uh, fantastically. Excellent. Yeah, I highly recommend it. <laughs> I loved playing those types of games with my mom's extended family, which I would think is probably slightly more religious. But oh dear, 
but just free spirited enough words where I can get away with it. So one of the ones that I have is actually a game which is called Overrated. Uh-oh. It's basically where you have to match reviews to locations and the one the winning combination that we had was uh when we were sitting all around the table so it's my extended family and my grandmother and we just happened to draw the card that says grandma's house no no and the winning combination and it was my grandmother's turn as well so that was like oh boy how are we going to mess this one up and my uncle of all people played a card which said uh they give you free beer if you flash the bartender (laughs) (sighs) so you never know what what family and then you know people who don't speak english you never know what crazy things they'll come up with All right. Well, Carl, do you want to do quick fire mentions or would you like to share your book report? Why don't we do some of the quick fire mentions and then I can go into uh, tumble us into the insanity. All right, let's go. Some, some quick little headlines for July. The Rosa Parks of our times, Nick Fuentes has been banned by Twitter. Mm, pour one out. Rest in peaceful posting. Rest in peaceful posting. But he still found a way to get onto Twitter because, of course, he made his comment uh, at the, what was it, like Americans for Freedom, Young Americans for Freedom, I guess they had a conference this month, and he said something to the effect that women should go back to not working and not voting like they did in the 50s. Mm, yes. Which is an interesting comment because women's suffrage passed in 1920. Mm-hmm. So. And women were a higher majority of the workforce ever since, you know, the whole period in the 40s where for some reason there weren't a lot of guys around i think there was because there was a world war at some point but hey thanks to the world war uh cawthorn had the ability to go visit some monuments to dead dictators oh my god it's a shame because nc11 is a very lovely district to go visit in general it covers part of Asheville, which is a little not little it's relatively little Kind of hippie mountain town. Super fun. A lot of breweries. Kind of sort of walkable in parts of it. It's fine. It's not walkable for Madison Cawthorn, though. Um, It's also very hilly, so which always gives anybody a lot of trouble. Oh, I'm sure. Maybe I'll just punch a few of the hills and it'll be fine. (sighs) Punch them flat, baby. Yep. Oh, another fun one this month. Uh So... Scientists studying crows get big surprise. Crows are so smart they understand the concept of zero. (laughs) I love this story. So it comes out from a university in Germany, which has an an unpronounceable name for me personally. Uh, Although I'm going to try to botch it. Tubingen. Or Tubingen. Tubingen. That's a little... Dutch yeah, I know. <laughs> or Swedish mm-hmm. uh, where professor uh, there worked with carrion crows to perform intelligence tests and quote the concept of nothing as the number zero is celebrated as one of the greatest achievements in mathematics we show that crows can grasp the empty set as a null numerical quantity that is mentally represented next to the number one hmm exactly how this breakthrough was made is straightforward and does not quote involve birds watching Sesame Street apparently crows were shown two sets of dots on a screen and were taught to indicate if the two screens had the same values 
there could be between zero and four dots, exactly with one, two, three, and four. So when they showed screens with both zero on, on both of them, crows understood that they were the same value hmm. and that it was a numeric set that contained nothing. Which is impressive because it took a human, a human civilization at least until 20,000 BCE or around that time period to firmly establish that zero was a number. So the Babylonians, there's a symbol to represent a number that was missing from a column. And then all of a sudden we found a way to teach crows that zero is a number. So you people out there worrying about the planet of the apes, consider planet of the crows. We may be creating highly intelligent birds who will soon take over. Because remember, they also know spite. Yes. Uh, yeah, so it'll be it'll be crows above and dolphins in the ocean because apparently dolphins also understand zero. Oh, that's right, they do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just had to look it up because my surprisingly my dolphin knowledge is not very good. Well, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, how far are you from the ocean? Three and a half hours. Okay. Eh, that's currently that, until that's climate fine. change. Oh yeah, there you go. Just wait for wait for climate change, and it'll just inch a little bit closer. Every little bit. We also had the ocean catch on fire. Yes. For what? Less than an hour. Something like that. It 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 caught on fire on Twitter for a couple of days. Yes. Yes, but it did. The the ocean in the Gulf, well specifically in the Gulf of Mexico. There mm -hmm. was a, I can't remember if it was oil or natural gas, but there was a offshore platform owned by Pemex, which is the Mexican government state-controlled oil company, which had a pipe that burst in the middle of the ocean. And so there was a segment where the ocean was on fire. And it looked like a portal into Dante's Inferno and all the, all the hells. And that was exciting because then... People started debating whole things about, I don't know, like the sustainability of capitalism. And I was like, it's a state oil company. They had a, Pemex has a long record of not only having corruption problems, say with local drug cartels and cartels siphoning off oil and natural gas from their pipelines, but also just rampant corruption in general and under criminal investigation in, by the Mexican authorities and also by the FBI. And then there's also this whole thing about uh, they don't exactly have the best safety standards in the world. So this kind of thing happening is not a huge surprise, but also very sad. It also wasn't like the BP oil spill. Which yeah. Was, which know, was This one was actually contained fairly quickly and... The worst damage it did was just giving fuel to Twitter. Yes, Twitter was inflamed for several days. Um, what about Black Hammer taking their money to spend in Atlanta clubs? What, what are we going to say about that? Uh, if you're not aware, Black Hammer is a international organization. Uh, they have chapters in different cities and regions that are... Uh, their main focus is they are, oh goodness, how do we put this? Trying to take back 
land and civilization for colonized people and to help out uh, traditionally marginalized groups, um, you know, get through the pandemic and things like that. Um, they were raising a substantial amount of money to create a, compound no a settlement no uh, a city yeah they call it hammer city in colorado Uh, they said they had uh, they had found a location about 200 acres and it looked great i mean this came a couple years after they said they were going to be setting it up in florida somewhere Um, they got kicked out this march yes this march uh, the police came and finally evicted them because it turns out you can't just go to someone else's property and set up shop. And especially claim it's if yours. That, <laughs> especially if that property is a conservation easement. Uh, at least if the uh, location sleuthing is true, it was. So they've got, they didn't spend any money to buy this land. Uh, so what do you do with it? Well, you go back to Atlanta and you tell people to come meet you at the clubs. Because that's where real revolutionary activity happens. It's funny because it actually is because revolutions are 360 rotations. So if you spin dance at the club, that's, that's technically a revolution. Fair enough. Fair enough. So they also have crazy vaccine takes too. They, they call the, they, they, they spell the word vaccine with KKK in it. They believe that vaccines are like white and, uh, uh, Jewish globalist conspiracy designed to infect people of color. Mm -hmm. It's there's a, there's a weird, it's, it's generally bad. Uh, And also not really good takes on that subject. So. Oh goodness. No, it's, it's the, the, the bad take bumper crop Mm -hmm. all day, every day with them. Now, these last two we got on the list, Carl, you're going to have to help me out because you're our Texas expert. Um, Texpert. Texpert, yes. Yes. So, So, yeah, go. So these two items could be converged into one, which is, if you recall back, way back in the the, uh, days of the youth of this podcast, maybe a couple months ago, when we were talking about all the wonderful things happening in the state legislative session, well... State of Texas has a rule that says that the governor can call a special session of the state legislature in order to address certain topics. So say that the legislature meets for its regular time period on the calendar, which is generally, I'm being very vague here, it starts very early winter, usually runs till about May or so. And of course, the state usually only meets in the... Uh, winter, spring, and beginning of summer, right after the election. So, say there's an election 2020, the state legislature meets in 2021 because it doesn't. It never sits for a full setting. It's not like uh, states like California where uh, the legislators sit for a full session um, all, all the time. So it's not like they meet in 2021 and they run continuously into 2022. Okay. So, if the state legislature can't get all of its priorities done in you know, by the May deadline, the governor can say, okay, well, I'm going to call them back into special session so they can take care of X or Y, Z topics. Or if the governor thinks the legislature didn't do its job, he can go and say, I'm going to call a special legislative session to only deal with X, Y, and Z topics. So 
what are some of the things that happened? So in the last part of the state legislative session, there was a proposal to, I think it could fairly say to clamp down on some of the loosened voting restrictions, some of the voting restrictions that were loosened during the pandemic in 2020. So I'm going to give an example. Harris County, which is the city uh, of Houston, loosened their uh, voting restrictions to allow things like drive-through voting, which was no one had ever heard of before, but it was really cool. I had relatives who went and did it. Essentially, it was you drove up to a tent or a polling station, got your ID, then you drove up to another one, and then they handed you a mobile voting tablet or voting booth electronic and you could type it in there get a printout ballot so you know there's a paper trail and then you would just drive off you know you wouldn't have to sit in line hmm. for hours you could just sit in your car and you know listen to the good faith podcast if you wanted to before it existed uh having said that harris county did that they there were also some places that experimented with 24-hour voting so that people who you know got off of work late could go and vote late things like that the legislature decided, or let me be more frank, the, the Texas GOP said, oh, no, we're not going to have that. We're going to restrict that. We're also going to place restrictions on absentee ballots. We're going to do a whole bunch of other things to make it more difficult to vote because you you county secretaries, you loosen the rules that weren't specified. So there's an argument about does it actually increase voting restrictions? Does it just clarify the law? Broadly, it's going to restrict voting. We're just going to say say that. It's going to clamp down on all of these other alternatives that popped up during the pandemic. So that got, that got killed at the last moment at the end of May. And so one of the first priorities that on the governor's list of, well, I'm going to call a special session back, and we're going to talk about election security and election integrity, which is code word for, I'm going to pass the same bill that we tried to pass earlier. There is a weird clause in the Texas state constitution, which is a fun one, which is you need a quorum of two thirds in order to do business. In the US constitution, I believe it's only a majority. So this means that if you are the minority party and you control more than a third of the seats, you can do what's called quorum busting, which is you can disappear and then the state houses can't meet. So the house representatives in the Senate can't meet because they don't have a quorum. And so the Texas Democrats decided that they were going to skip town and go to Washington, D.C. And that is what is known as quorum busting. It happened before. It happened in 2002, 2003, when the uh, Texas State Party tried to uh, redraw some congressional districts. There was a uh, there was a movement and attempt to do that. So as of today, as of you know, August 1st, the uh, Texas House Democrats have been absent from the legislature for 19 days, 23 hours, and 44 minutes. And until they come back, the state legislature can't pass any new laws. It can't take up any of the other priorities this legislative session. It can't do anything. Is this something where they have to leave the state in order for it to take effect? So what happens is that if you are not present for the quorum, the House of Representatives can send sheriffs to go and find you. Oh, God. And pre- essentially arrest you and bring you back to the State House. 
Okay. The problem is that their jurisdiction does not extend outside the state of Texas. So okay. the last time this, this happened, uh, the Texas uh, Democrats went to New Mexico and the s- sheriffs couldn't follow them there. And eventually there was this whole thing. I think there was a compromised reach or a couple of them came back. But, it, but anyway, so the special legislative session is rapidly approaching its deadline and the House has not been doing it, doing much because they don't have a quorum. And in the meantime, the state Senate, run by uh, iron-fisted dictator Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, decided in the meantime that it's going to take a very popular stand and try to correct the bill that had passed last go-round. So we mentioned this already, again, previous podcast, where the state Senate tried to pass a bill restricting critical race theory. The House amended that bill or passed its own bill, which said, hey, we're going to make sure that in this curriculum that people learn about specific things and specific topics. So famous people of color in Texas, famous women from Texas. Uh, you should know things like, for example, Frederick Douglass's Fourth uh, of July speech about what it means to be an American as an African-American in the United States. Things of that nature. And then there's also this clause in there which said to the effect that Students in a Texas classroom should learn that uh, white supremacy is a moral wrong. So Dan Patrick decided that it would be great for the Senate to jump off a cliff and go, no, we're going to pass a bill that's going to strike that language from the Texas legal code now. So they essentially voted on a bill to say, hey, we're going to take a stand and say that we're going to strike the words white supremacy is a moral wrong. So brave. So brave. So brave. You, you just decided that this was the moment to come out and say, we don't need to teach that. And just have it all, have all the cards out on the table. So uh, the state of Texas continues to be dysfunctional to this day. And meanwhile, we still haven't found a solution to fix the power grid. You should really work on that. Your winner's coming again soon. Yeah, um, so the problem in the past has been when the power grid has failed during the summer. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, um, when there's the highest load capacity, because, of course, air conditioning is one of God's greatest inventions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it failed in the winter, and there's a good likelihood that there may be some failures in the summer, so... It's a it's a mess. I mean, the other things that are on the special legislative session are, of course, transgendered youth in sports. That one came. That one decided to come back on the agenda too, and all sorts Very of other important. fun things that are popular with the base. Oh, and funding a border wall. Oh god. Yep that 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 old chestnut popped up again. With what Oklahoma? I, no, I'm sadly not with Oklahoma. That's the only border wall that I support. <laughs> it is a, the border wall with Mexico, oh. which no one has still figured out how the Rio Grande factors into that. So, yep. We'll figure it out. Yep. So that's the state of Texas being dysfunctional as usual. They can just build a wall out of Fox News reporters and South Dakota governors. If any of them are left after the COVID pandemic. So far, so good. So far, so good. I think so. Sean Hannity was telling people that everyone should be vaccinated, which worst person in the world, I guess, makes a point. Yeah, there were some little bits and pieces about that 
Um, I don't know. All the other, all the serious advertisers have left Fox News to the extent that when they lost uh, Mike Lindell's money this past week, um, they're running really weird nutrient supplement ads now. Oh, drifting into Alex Jones territory, I see. They're getting there, man. They're getting there. So that's a quick fire round. I think that's a good way to wrap that up. So much happened this month. So much happened this month. It needs to stop. It All never right. does, though. Because <laughs> we have to bring our audience breaking news after it happens. 100%. Yeah. All right. Carl, this month you delved maybe a little too deep into Hobby Lobby. I... Oh, yeah. That... Ladies and, and gentlemen. <laughs> and, this, and this story came to me where... Uh, my fiance went to Hobby Lobby this week to get some supplies for some crafting. And the 40% off coupons are no longer valid. No. They don't they don't offer them. You can't redeem them. Good luck. And that sort of led into there's been a lawsuit, a settlement. Lord knows if they're going to bring these. I mean, they're pretty famous for you get 40% off one item coupons that go out in the paper every month or every oh, week yeah. rather um you get them online in their app like it's a big draw to go to the store and goodness gracious what it is there any other company in america that really gets in the news like this i would say there are a few rare exceptions considering okay. the certain political valence of Hobby Lobby because there are some companies that get into the news because they're big like there's tech companies that get into the news because they're big like Google sure. and Facebook or whatever and there's this whole debate about you know censorship and boo 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 you know big big tech whatever that's to be expected there are certain companies that get into the news because they have I, I guess the generous way to put it is politically active CEOs or families that control them mm -hmm. is one way to put it. And this is where Hobby Lobby falls into that category because Hobby Lobby is just weird as, as the way, as the way I'm going to put this, this, this is a story which has multiple different angles. And if you thought that Hobby Lobby discount coupons were a conspiracy enough wait until you hear this so oh, well before you jump in you're talking about how they're weird whenever you go in again if you ever do because lord knows why would you if they get rid of this 40 percent off coupon forever you'll notice there are no barcodes on their products everything has an individual price sticker on it is it because barcodes might be the mark of the devil i don't know it's funny you mention that because i bring that up oh good <laughs> So I'm happy. To, I'm happy to jump in your uh, jump in your pool. Well, actually, before we even do that, I'm gonna have share one Hobby Lobby story because this comes from my youth, where oh. this must have been third or fourth grade, and this was oh, we had to do some sort of poetry project for one of my. I guess it was for homeroom, and this was the you know the magnet elementary school. So yes, I was a bit of a nerd. Uh, and this was one of the things we did is that we wrote poetry on sea creatures. I don't explain why. On and sea creatures? 
on sea creatures. Yeah. So the theme was we had to pick a sea creature and write a poem about it. And okay. I picked a lobster and I can't remember why. I think it was because that lobsters were the food that I used to, my characters used to eat when I played RuneScape. Okay. So long digression. Okay. <laughs> Classic me in third or fourth grade. I had sort of forgotten about this project until the day before it was due. And so I went to my parents and told them, Hey, this project's due tomorrow. Can we go like get some craft supplies? So the first thing that happened was that, of course, my parents grounded me because, you know, I had a month to do this and I asked them the day before. (laughs) And the second was, okay, we'll go to Hobby Lobby. We're in Hobby Lobby. We're walking down the aisles and I run into one of my classmates and she and her dad were there. And her dad was telling to my mom, oh, yeah, she had forgotten about this project and only told me the day before that it was due. (laughs) That was just I got so much validation out of that is that I met the other high achieving student in that class who was like, yeah, project due tomorrow. And I think hers was an oyster. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Or, or a clam. It was one of those two. So that's my hobby lobby bonding experience was <laughs> doing this project the night before. And it turned out great mainly because my mom stayed up and glued feathers to the tail of a lobster. <laughs> Cause they famously have feathers. <laughs> they famously had feathers. It was just to give it some decoration. I got got a good grade. Thanks, Mom. Anyway, so that's... Hobby Lobby has come in clutch more than once, but Hobby Lobby has a genuinely weird history, ladies and gentlemen. And if you think that discount coupons are bad, wait until you hear about stolen artifacts from ancient civilizations. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is Arts and Graft, the dirt on Hobby Lobby. So Morgan, I bet you're wondering, what actually is Hobby Lobby? I'm glad you asked. So in 1972, uh, David Green, who's the son of an evangelical preacher, opened the first Hobby Lobby store in Northwest Oklahoma City. So this is actually a cultural byproduct of Oklahoma and everything that comes with it to specifically focus on arts and craft supplies. I actually believe at the time, and I I read this, and I hope it's true, that he founded the store while he was still working at another arts and craft store. That tracks. Well, they were were originally uh, a a picture frame company. That was their specialty, and they still do a lot of it. Well, Michael's pretty much does the same thing, too, because Michael's, that's the big draw with them, is that they have a a huge selection of, you know, they did custom frames as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that was Hobby Lobby's bread and butter when they first started was just picture frames. But they got into arts and crafts. Uh, The first store emerged outside Oklahoma in 1984. And by 2020, the chain has more than 900 locations nationwide. God almighty. Well, yeah. So Hobby Lobby is a privately held company. On the Hobby Lobby website, one of the quotes they have is, they honor the Lord in all we do by operating the company in a manner consistent with biblical principles. Right. So they are kind of the Chick-fil-A of arts and crafts. Yep. Closed on Sunday. Closed on Sunday. They drive uh, stakes through their employees' ears. You know, it's funny you mention that, actually, because... Um, so their entry-level full-time hourly wages have actually been $15 an hour since 2014. No kidding. Yeah, and in 2020, they announced it would be raised to $17. They do make a ton of money. They do make a ton of money off 
bins and baubles. And they oh, but closer stores on Sundays. So in case you're wondering if you had an arts and crafts project due on Monday, you are sore out of luck with them. <laughs> oh, also in biblical principles, I wrote in my notes, uh, quote, Matthew nineteen eighteen, thou shall not steal actually comes up later. Oh, so owners, religious beliefs, the chain has long been criticized due to the actions and beliefs of its owner. Mr. Green, specifically regarding his Christian beliefs regarding such topics as transgendered people and homosexuality. And in 2019, uh, it was discovered that Green had been donating to the National Christian Foundation, which provides money to groups like the Family Research Council and the Alliance Defending Freedom. Oh, dear. Uh, They are popular in opposing and lobbying against access to pornography, embryonic stem cell research, abortion, divorce, Okay. And uh, LGBT plus rights, such as uh, opposing anti-discrimination laws, same-sex marriage, same-sex civil unions, and LGBT adoptions. Uh, The Family Research Council is particularly fun because one of their bete noirs, I guess, is that uh, homosexuality, they claim, is linked to pedophilia. So these are... These groups may be classified as quote-unquote controversial. One could comfortably say that. One could comfortably say that. Uh, I think for most people, the Hobby Lobby's claim to fame was the Supreme Court case Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. And in this case, there's a section of the ACA, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which mandated that companies provide access to uh, contraception and the morning after pill. And in... September 2012, Hobby Lobby filed a lawsuit against the government over these regulations, uh, citing religious liberty concerns. So in 2014, the Supreme Court ruled that Hobby Lobby and other closely held stock corporations, which are essentially private companies, uh, can choose to be exempt from the law based on uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was a law passed by Congress in the 90s. Uh, it did not hold that it was a First Amendment issue, but it was specifically this legal question. So that's the big one was Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. And that's where most of the political valence of Hobby Lobby, that's probably when it reached its peak. But in addition to that, in case you hadn't already noticed, the general frame is that is that Hobby Lobby tends to have a re- highly religious angle to its operations. And one of them... Um, they opened up a museum Ooh. known as the Museum of the Bible. Okay. So the Museum of the Bible is a, I would say, I would call it a pet project, not in a negative way, but just, you know, a pet project of the Green family. Uh, it was established as a nonprofit in 2010. And in 2012, the Green family purchased the former Washington Design Center in D.C., which is a few blocks, I think, from the National Mall. And the primary donors to the museum at its launch were, of course, Hobby Lobby and its owners, and the National Christian Foundation. And it opened in November 2017. So this museum is supposed to document the narrative, history, and impact of the Bible. Uh, Broadly, I mean, it has has an American valence, but it also has a worldwide valence, too, about the impact of the Bible on world culture. Okay. 
It has over a thousand items in its permanent collection and two thousand items on loan from other institutions and collections. So I think there's some stuff from a couple Israeli museums in there and some private vendors and all that like. So some of its things that it has on display, which is quite interesting, um, biblical papyri, so things written on papyrus, uh, Torah scrolls, rare printed Bibles, Jewish artifacts. Um, apparently, Julia Ward Howe's original manuscript for Battle Hymn of the Republic they were able to get hold of. Oh, cool. Uh, a replica of the Liberty Bell, which has uh, an inscription of Leviticus on it. I think it's like, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Pretty cool. Uh, they had the uh, a, Whit a Whitcliffe New Testament, and they also had the one of the prayer books of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. So, oh, quite a vast and interesting collection. So, they have this museum, and it's supposedly stocked with all of these artifacts. And one of the important things that you do when you have religious artifacts is that you need to verify where they come from and verify their authenticity. And that's known as art provenance. And at any point you want to know, yeah, hey, if the this ancient Torah scroll, if the authenticity of it comes into question, you want to be able to cite where you bought it, where it came from, you know, do things like carbon dating to see how far back in history it goes, and have all sort of documentation. Unfortunately, that stuff can be forged and not so clear and sometimes delves into illegal territory. And that's where Hobby Lobby ran into trouble because according to the Green family, they didn't do a whole lot of research when they got into this religious artifacts that were going to buy a thing. Weird. I know, right? Turns out that just because you own an arts and crafts store doesn't mean that you're archaeologists. I know, right? So this is where they get into trouble, because it turns out that a couple of their, a couple, air quotes, of their items are, don't have the best chain of custody, which is where we run into things like what happened in the news this month. So uh, there were a bunch of items that were seized by the U.S. Justice Department uh, that Hobby Lobby had and the Green family had acquired, I guess is the proper way to say it. And their validity in acquiring these objects very much came to question. Uh, the U.S. government fined Hobby Lobby, and Hobby Lobby had to turn several of these things over. Now, why did they have to turn several of these things over? Well, it's because they were probably looted. So, let's get into that. So... For those of us in our audience, and for you, Morgan, you may or may not remember, but there was this little thing in 2003, which was called the Iraq War. And at the time, uh, one of the things that happened was that the Iraqi museum in Baghdad was heavily looted. Okay. Yeah. Now, this is from the American Journal of Archaeology. I'm citing this from here. Um, that the... Iraqi museum had been ransacked and more than 170,000 of its antiquities had been stolen while U.S. forces were there in Iraq. Uh, the missing list of objects included things dating as far back as ancient Mesopotamia all the way through till the modern state of Iraq. And at that point, they learned that 
the best current estimate because they were able to find some of the stolen antiquities because they they'd been looted by say private people who had gone in you know local vandals uh there were also uh dealers and smugglers who take the opportunity to come in uh I believe this is an allegation. I'm not sure if this is true, but there may have been some American forces also involved in that as well. Uh, I think my best understanding of that is that that's unproven, but that was one of the allegations is that it may have been aided and abetted in that. So about uh, the current estimate, this was a 2005. So 2003, the museum was looted. A bunch of things got ransacked and stolen. By 2005, they were able to recover a good chunk of the collection, but about 15,000 pieces had disappeared. And they included things, you know, all the greatest hits of, hey, this really, really old bowl or this crafted animal or these tablets uh, that had ancient writings on them. And, you know, excavation site pieces, uh, things from, like, some of the most prized treasures were just gone. Uh, so, this involved international community creating a task force in order to identify and recover these treasures. And one of the treasures that was believed to have been lost was a tablet which had the Epic of Gilgamesh, or part of the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh, known as the Dream Tablet, uh, which was originally discovered in Iraq in 1853 and was put as one of the museum objects. So, Morgan, I'm going to take you a brief dive into Mesopotamian history because we need to talk about Please the Epic of Gilgamesh. Do. Absolutely. I'd be more than happy to talk about this. So the Epic of Gilgamesh is an epic poem, which is a form of long-form poetry. So for our audience who maybe knows classical literature more, think of like the Iliad or the Odyssey. Uh, it's an epic poem from ancient Mesopotamia. It's actually regarded as probably one of the earliest surviving uh, works of literature, like full works of literature, and is widely believed to be the, I think, the second oldest religious text after uh, what was found in uh, the pyramids of Egypt. So that's, it's one of the earliest surviving pieces of writing that we have. And the literary history of Gilgamesh is sort of these five Sumerian poems, ancient Sumeria. So this is about, oh, 2100 BC. So several... Uh, that sounds right. Yeah, about 4,000 years ago or so. And it talks about this ancient king known as Gilgamesh, who is the king of Uruk. I almost pronounced it Uruk, but that's wrong. It's Uruk. <laughs> and it's... The biggest contribution, I think, is that there's this part of the where Gilgamesh takes an, a journey to under, to discover the secrets of eternal life. And one of the big quotes is, he eventually learns that, quote, life, which you look for, you will never find. For when the gods created man, they let death be his share and life withheld in their own hands. Kind of a downer, really. Eh. So shorter versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the reason we eventually found out about, about it is because 18th and 15th century texts of it were discovered. And then eventually with archaeology, we were able to uncover that, hey, there's actually a long form version of it. Uh, and we've been able to recover approximately two thirds of it, of this 12 tablet version. 
Some of the best copies were discovered in the library ruins of the 7th century BC Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. I'm going to go, that's his name. Ash. Perfect. Yes. And so it's like, okay, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Why would why would people who believe in Christianity and Judaism be interested in it? Well, it's because there's various themes and plot elements in the uh, Hebrew Bible, which actually are seem to relate to the Epic of Gilgamesh. So there's accounts of the Garden of Eden and the Genesis flood narrative. So there's some there's some parallels between these two stories, and that's why it seems culturally important. Now, the most direct sources for most of this come from what are known as cuneiform tablets, which uh, was written in the ancient Akkadian language. So writing back in those days started as recording of transactions. And then finally, people thought, we don't just have to record business transactions, we can record written history. So at the time, these ancient civilizations did not have papyrus or paper, so they imprinted writing on clay, like clay tablets. And then what they did is they fired, essentially fired the tablets in a kiln, and then it would you know, have this quote-unquote document, which would have this cuneiform writing. And so cuneiform is this symbolic script that was used. It was very common in the ancient Near East, and was used probably from the early Bronze Age to the beginning of phonetic alphabets. I think the latest one they said they found carbon dated was like 75 AD. So by wow. just about, so for about 2000 years, cuneiform was one of the standard uh, methods of writing and languages. And it comes from the fact that the styluses that people used when they were imprinting into clay, they would have these, uh, the Latin would word for wedges, a cuna, and they would create these symbols and that turned into the cuneiform written uh, script. And it was one of the languages of, Sumeria and Mesopotamia, which is where we get the Epic of Gilgamesh in its original form from. So thankfully, we have tens of thousands of these that survive, so we can have some account of what the Bronze Age was like. Now there's a conspiracy about what happened to the Bronze Age civilizations, how they collapsed, but we're not going to go into that. That's a whole separate conspiracy theory. There's like sea people and volcanoes and all sorts of other crazy stuff. So that's Gilgamesh. That's cuneiform tablets. So that having been said, <laughs> uh, the museum, uh, the Baghdad Museum in Iraq was looted. And again, I'm just citing another source here. This is from an academic journal called The Conversation, which talked about how, hey, there was a bunch of things from this museum that were looted. Several thousand artifacts were unaccounted for. We don't know where they are. Uh, you know, the problem with is that there's actually a huge illegal market for stolen antiquities. And for example, the Wall Street Journal published an article or expose in 2017, which said that probably about 100,000 antiquities are sold online. And of which about 80% they estimate were are either looted or they're just 100% fabricated. Wow. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, according to them, in this article, there's a study from the University of Oxford which said the turnover on this antiquities market is about $10 million a day. Uh, so that's 
a big thing. And it talks about how private collectors and institutions had to be aware of that. And of course, this is a venue for organized crime, because why wouldn't it be? According to the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, the OCCRP, which is a fun acronym. And it goes into whole things about, for example, ISIS got in on the action too, when they were decided that they were going to loot several sites in Syria and in Iraq. So they weren't just destroying ancient locations, like the fact that ISIS destroyed the ancient city of Palmyra, which is a sham crime against humanity for that. Crime against all archaeology. Ugh. I mean, on top of the fact that ISIS is evil, the fact that they decided to destroy an ancient ancient remnants of civilization, and then also loot artifacts on top of Tell that. Tells how you really feel. Tells you how they really feel, yeah. Uh, and they also made possibly anywhere between $4 million to $7 billion off of selling illegal antiquities that they looted from all the places that they plundered, in addition to killing religious minorities and all the other horrible brutal things that they did to the populations that they captured and enslaved too because there's also human trafficking involved so yeah isis turns out that they were bad people who knew what i know right yeah it's like that uh, famous drill tweet <laughs> just learned about isis you, you don't you don't gotta hand it to them <laughs> the rand corporation surprisingly enough, also had a policy paper on this. So the Rand Corporation, you know, in, in addition to thinking about national defense policy, also finds time to be like, hey, let's talk about the illegal antiquities market too. Their big thing that they go into was, uh, hey, things in Iraq happened, Afghanistan, also in the Arab Spring, there were a bunch of museums that got looted when countries fell into chaos to the Civil War. And so there's this huge market. It's just the problem that we don't actually know how large the illegal uh art market is because there's not a good tracking system for it is that a lot of countries don't share information with one another and it's hard to tell when you sell an antiquity in say the united states and you claim it's a valid antiquity in the u.s the u.s may say okay well it's a valid antiquity but in another country it'll say oh no it's been looted there's not a dispute resolution mechanism to determine the source of that art unless it's you know something that's really famous like if the mona lisa was stolen whether there would be it'd be a little bit of an eyebrow raised if you tried to sell the mona lisa even on the black market so that was the whole thing and then of course what their policy paper was talking about is that people are starting to take more note of it and take account of it and places like interpol are leading into it so that's so Things got looted from the from the museums in Iraq and a whole bunch of other places. And where did they go? Well, remember that museum, <laughs> the Museum of the Bible. Remember how Hobby Lobby got really interested in cultural artifacts? Well, oops. <laughs> Turns out that uh, Hobby Lobby started buying uh, antiquities from uh, dealers in Israel and the United Arab Emirates, and this is from an article in 2017 from the New York Times, uh, from retail outlets, and then shipping them to the U.S. And, under the purview of Hobby Lobby. And under the fact that they were sold in the U.S. and you know brought through customs as, quote, tile samples. Which Hobby Lobby, don't know the last time you've been in, walked up and down all the aisles, 
they don't sell tile. No, they don't. At all. Not a not a single scrap of tile. It's not like a home renovation. It's not like Lowe's. Maybe if they were Home Depot, they could probably get away with that. So that <laughs> raised an eyebrow. So this article goes into detail about in 2010, uh, Hobby Lobby was actually started to uh, arrange and negotiate deals for cuneiform tablets. And then there, an expert on cultural property law who had been hired by Hobby Lobby, quote, warned company executives that the artifacts that they were buying may have been looted from historical sites in Iraq and that failing to determine their heritage could break the law. Still went ahead and bought the tablets anyway. So, despite these words of caution, the prosecutor said Hobby Lobby may have bought more than 5,500 artifacts in tablets and clay talismans and so-called cylindrical seals from an unnamed dealer for $1.6 million in December 2010. It went that far back, yeah. Hmm. And what we know now is that, or the way that we think it happened, is that is very similar to what happened with the tablet for uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is it looks like there was like a Jordanian um, dealer who then sold some of these artifacts to Christie's in London, and then Christie's had an auction and sold those to Hobby Lobby. Okay. That's one route. Another route was there were dealers in Israel and the United Arab Emirates who Hobby Lobby was negotiating from as well. So it, one source was direct, one source was indirect. So from what my understanding, the tablet of Gilgamesh, the way it got to Hobby Lobby, was through Christie's, through like the Christie's Jordanian connection. Whereas these 5,000 tile samples came from Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Uh you may be you may not be surprised that the federal government decided to take an interest in this. And it was like, what you got there? Is that, you know, hey, your purchase of these artifacts may be fraught with quote red flags, Hobby Lobby. <laughs> uh Hobby Lobby then wired payments to seven separate personal bank accounts. <laughs> it was just like, no one thought that this was suspicious. Uh the first dealer shipped the items marked as, as you said, Morgan Clay or ceramic tiles to three Hobby Lobby sites in Oklahoma. And all the packages had labels falsely identifying their country of origin as, quote, Turkey. Oh. <laughs> uh, so their explanation for this was so that Hobby Lobby's collection of historical Bibles and artifacts like the tablets was, quote, consistent with the company's mission and passion for the Bible. Um, and he also said that, you know, responding to these allegations, uh, Mr. Green said, quote, Hobby Lobby was new to the world of acquiring these items and did not fully appreciate the complexities of the acquisition process. <laughs> he said that regrettable mistakes were made and sh they should have exercised more oversight. <laughs> uh, one, one could call a felony a regrettable mistake. One could say that if someone warned you ahead of time that maybe you should oh, check the chain then. of custody. Yeah, oh, probably oh, for sure. should have looked at that earlier. So my personal favorite part of the story is that, of course, in these types of cases, civil these civil forfeiture cases, what happens is that the U.S. government, my very vague legal understanding, so you lawyers out there, I'm about to make your head, heads explode. My legal understanding is that the United States government essentially sues to collect the objects and then takes them 
Okay. But the titles of the suits are the items that they are trying to collect. So the title of the suit in this case was United States of America, that's the plaintiff, versus approximately 450 ancient cuneiform tablets (laughs) and approximately 3,000 ancient clay clay bully. It's... Who would win? Who would win? The U.S. government or some clay tablets? Vote now on your phones. Now on your phones. This is actually goes back to, uh, again, it just makes me giggle because the uh, Coca-Cola also had another case like this way, way back, uh, back in the early tw- uh, 20th century about a case exactly like this. It was the United States versus 40 barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola. These civil forfeiture cases always had the funnest titles. But essentially, so, for example, the defendants in Reem are ancient clay and stone artifacts that originate in the area of modern Iraq. It's just like, it's like the, it's like the tablets committed a crime. So, but uh, they were, so they sued to get those back. And then they also later sued to get things like the, uh, Epic of Gilgamesh back too. So you will not be surprised to learn that Hobby Lobby had to pay some fines for this. Uh, one of them was $3 million specifically for the Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh. And uh, agreed to return thousands of artifacts to Iraq that they originally wanted to put in the uh, Museum on the History of the Bible. So that's... um. Uh, getting caught up in the illegal antiquities trade was not a story that I thought that Hobby Lobby was going to go into. It's just, I didn't, the, the pathway dependency of that was not one that I would have expected. So of course, Hobby Lobby is now suing Christie's saying that it was a fraudulent transaction. Uh, but now there's a fight over who actually knew what the chain of custody was in terms of this tablet of the epic of gilgamesh and my whole thing is you gotta you gotta check your sources you really gotta check your sources like this whole thing is crazy for the fact that looted artifacts from iraq were allowed to get into the united states as you know ceramic tiles (laughs) uh and so, thankfully, the Epic of Gilgamesh is going to be back on its way to uh, Iraq and back to the museum, uh, museum in Baghdad, where it properly deserves to be as a cultural heritage site. Sadly, right. there is still a huge illegal uh, uh, artifact and art. I guess you call it. yeah, it's pretty much a black illicit market. trade. It's, it's illicit trade. Yeah, I was going to try to combine the two, but yes, illicit trade and black market around the world, and it's it's just crazy. But there's a postscript to this story. Oh, go on. So you know how there's the uh, museum, you know, this biblical history museum that <laughs> they have, and. And we, we we talked about how Hobby Lobby was forced to give over all these cuneiform tablets. And we, of course, talked about the fine. And we talked about the fact that Green admitted that he knew little about the world of collecting. Well, it also, turn, it also turns out that Green House had a private collection of things that he thought were religiously significant as well. 
Oh no. Things that he collected. Um so they poured millions into acquiring these uh, antiquities on the market without a clue about their history, the material features, cultural value, fragilities, and pr- possible problems with the objects. So my personal favorite is in this museum of the Bible, they have a series of, uh, I guess you can call them excerpts from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if you are unaware, the Dead, Scre- the Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient Jewish and Hebrew religious manuscripts. Some of them, I think they, I think the quote is about 40% contain excerpts from the Torah or the Old Testament that were found in uh, the Qumran caves in the Judean desert near some place I'm not going to pronounce on the northern shore of the Dead Sea in the West Bank. And the estimated age of them is about 400 BC to about 320 AD, somewhere around there. And so they're they're considered hugely significant. The uh, excerpts of these are coveted. They contain some of the earliest transcriptions of uh, texts from the Torah and the Old Testament. Religiously valuable. So it turns out that Mr. Green decided that he was going to try and collect some excerpts of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, when the museum's catalog was released to the public with these uh, excerpts, Several outside experts expressed, quote, concern that the museum had not adequately accounted for the fragments' provinces, or provenances. And uh, one professor declared they were outright forgeries. So the museum decided, hey, we're going to take a look at these Dead Sea Scrolls and all these excerpts. So in 2018, uh, the museum announced that, whoops, the expert looked at the Dead Sea Scroll fragments that Mr. Green acquired. And five of the 16 fragments were forgeries. Oh. But it gets worse. In 2010, okay. the museum confirmed all 16 fragments were forgeries. Oh. <laughs> so I have a discussion question. Should we feel bad for Steve Green? I, I don't know. <laughs> I uh, spent, a, he spent a whole lot of money collecting a whole lot of nothing. And... It's it's still it's still propping up the the whole black market around this sort of thing, right? Oh yeah, Even if they are forgeries. You're 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 funding people who are adjacent to it and uh, and, and uh, doing the actual looting and acquisitions that you could say in the first place. Right, you're funding people who loot real antiquities and artifacts. Yeah. So then there's a separate article where I cited where it said quote. Approximately half of the museum's artifacts are considered to be forgeries. Wow. Of their 20,000 that they have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now I kind of want to go and just sort of like flip a coin at everything like eh, forgery or not. Forgery flip. or not forgery. Deal or no deal. Forgery or no forgery. There you go. That'd be a fun show. So the very last where we're going to leave this off is, of course, the real conspiracy of the month, which is class action lawsuits against Hobby Lobby saying their company's never-ending sales are actually really deceptive. Which is their whole yeah. policy that you may or may not be aware of, that Hobby Lobby has what it calls a... Uh, of course, Morgan already went over, they have discount coupons, but they also have items that are marked as, quote, always 30% off. Mm-hmm. And so one of the allegations that popped up in a couple class action lawsuits was the fact that, hey, 
if it's marked as always 30% off, is it really 30% off or is that the real price that you're offering it? Hobby Lobby's argument was that no, it's it's just 30% off. The plaintiff's argument was if it's always 30% off, then that's the actual price. So my 40% discount coupon should apply. That caused some lawsuits. Also caused a lawsuit uh, filed by the state of New York against Hobby Lobby as well that they had to settle. And <laughs> 2014, where Hobby Lobby agreed to pay civil penalties in an action brought by the state of New York over the quote never-ending sales. So, if there's a if you're confused, uh, you're not the first person, and you're probably not going to be the last because Hobby Lobby's uh, discount coupons have started disappearing, and they might not come back because of this lawsuit and all these allegations. On because their coupons apply to regularly priced items. Now, right. if it's Nothing always on sale, yeah, everything on sale. If it's always on sale, is that the regular price of the item? So these are some uh, legal shenanigans. <laughs> According to the terms of the proposed settlement filed with the court, eligible class members, uh, so the class was in Alabama and in Florida, who purchased certain items with a coupon will be notified about how to claim a one-time $14 payment. <laughs> Boy, howdy. Boy, howdy. Uh, they also have to discontinue their uh, current coupons within 45 days following a court approval of the agreement. And so they were phasing them out, but Hobby Lobby has stated that they will revise the terms of their 40% discount coupon so the language should remedy the deficiencies alleged in the complaints. But we don't know how it'll work because uh, it will be the new coupon language will be more explicit. It will say, uh, although they'll have a long list of exclusions as to what this does not apply for, including it won't apply to a discounted price, clearance price, reduced price, or items marked with a yellow Your Price sticker. Yep. Okay. So crazycouponlady.com. Oh, uh, so, uh, so in addition to you know me citing the Rand Corporation and the New York Times and the American Journal of Archaeology, I get to cite mm -hmm. crazycouponlady.com. Uh, you have to. Yes, was uh, talking about this and talking about this co uh, consumer lawsuit, and that's their big question at the very end of the day: is is the forty percent coupon actually worth it if everything in store is on sale? And if so, is that really just a conspiracy theory for people to? go to the store and think that they have a 40% coupon when really when they go up to the register, it's going to be like 40% off a packet of pencils rather than, you know, this really, really specialty craft clay or, you know, this, I, I think they still sell model train sets, like $300 model train sets or something like that. They, yeah. they, have, a whole, they have a whole section about that or, you know, window frames or uh, not window frames, picture frames and uh, all sorts of other crazy things. So, that's um I think that's a good place to wrap up with the crazy absolutely bonkers history of Hobby Lobby 40% discount coupons are they real are they not oh and by the way they may have looted artifacts from an ancient civilization and stolen them from the country who they rightfully belong to I mean if you're going to commit a felony is it it's kind of cool to do the one that is sort of Indiana Jonesy, right? Yeah, I guess you could say it's cooler to commit a white collar crime. <laughs>
I don't know. Is it cooler to commit a white collar crime? You know, email us. Yes, please, please do. You can email us at goodfaithpod at gmail.com or, and Carl thought this was a joke, and I assure you it is not. It is not. You can leave a message at 980-263-9841. I promise it's real. It's I get uh, notifications on my phone. Uh, we will, if, if you want us to, let us know if you want us to play your message on the show and uh, we can make that happen. How do we want to wrap up today? Do we want to do the mailbag question? Yes, we do. Okay. Folks. We actually have two. We have, we have, we have, we have two this month. There is uh, the first one, which uh, you probably should have asked your doctor, but even if I did smell like a roll of nickels, is that bad? Probably. Is it, is it Carl? I, if I did smell like a roll of nickels, I almost think that's almost a philosophical question. If I smell like a roll of nickels, is that bad? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it's smell? Like, what is a nickel? What? Right. It's a. Is the smell of a roll of nickels the same as the sound of one hand clapping? Exactly. Is this some sort of Zen thing. If a tree falls in a forest and no one's around to smell it, what is its scent? Nickels. <laughs> Obviously, nickels. What are what are trees but very large rolls of nickels? <laughs> Just extremely large rolls. Of- several thousand nickels in a trench coat (laughs) (laughs) oh man uh yeah if you uh smell like a roll of nickels that may have something to do with your eating habits okay i i highly encourage you if you oh my goodness it is one of the craziest youtube videos i've ever seen I, i was left speechless there are very few things that leave me speechless because i have a lot of commentary but it was this question is posed to us by um Miss Grimes, who you may may or may not know, is in a relationship with Elon Musk, and she talked about her dietary habits. Well, I I I, I can't remember off the top of my head if it's while she's pregnant or just her dietary habits in general. But it was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen, and probably explains why she smells like a roll of nickels, because. Her eating habits are, I, I was, again, I will repeat myself. I was left speechless and I encourage you to look up this YouTube video as well. It is, you know what I'm just going to say? It's horrifying. She also looks like Cindy Lou Who in that video. Do you think, do you think she uh, pre-chewed food for her and Elon Musk's child, a la Alicia Silverstone? She was not eating food i would argue to begin with okay so i do not believe that's possible again i encourage you to look at this youtube video it is bonkers so yes if you smell like a roll of nickels probably talk to your doctor about that you may may have a vitamin deficiency (laughs) you may need more nickel you may need (laughs) more nickel gracious uh what was our other mailbag question Yes, our, our second one uh, in the mailbag. This one actually was, uh, oddly enough, mailed to my house. Uh, so I don't know how... Um, there's no... 
return address or name. So I'm a little afraid, but it's fine. My Liberty Village cannot afford the peace and quiet insurance our local warlord provides. The sonic pain cannons begin tomorrow morning. Well, this came with uh, snail mail, so I'm not. Af- I'm afraid we really can't help you. It's probably far too late if your warlord is demanding that. True, especially you know tomorrow morning. How are you going to come up with a lot of money like that? I don't know. Find some ancient antiquities nearby, or you know, <gasps> create your own. I feel like this could be. You could really slot in any sort of got to make a lot of money, wacky '90s slash early 2000s movie. Oh, yeah. You could easily do something like that. Yeah. You have to pick up some strange woman's briefcase in an airport, a la Dumb and Dumber. Mm-hmm. Um, <gasps> oh, there's a McDonald's. Okay, did you ever see McMillions? Again, every episode <laughs> I had to mention McDonald's. Did you ever see McMillions? <laughs> what is McMillions? McMillions, it's on HBO. It's about how the McDonald's uh, uh, Monopoly game in from extensively long time from the mid nineties up till 2001 was rigged. Just, I knew it was rigged. Oh, but it goes into detail about how it was rigged. And this guy made millions off of it. Wow. Yes. But, and it was as simple as he had the briefcase in the airport and he would just swip, swap out the winning tickets with just a random pile of tickets. He would take the oh winning tickets gosh. home and then he would essentially sell them off. Wow. Oh yeah. It's, it all comes back to McDonald's, I'm telling you. Do you remember those little Monopoly tags you'd pick off the the little soda cups? Yep, and uh, it was all a lie between 1992 and, I think, 1992. 1992 to 2001, it was all a lie. That's fair. Now they have RFID in the bottom of the cup, so you can't get free soda refills, which is illegal in France. Yeah, that's right. In France, it's illegal to do that. I forgot. It's crazy. McDonald's should take a stand against that. I think they're doing okay. I think they're doing okay too. Oh, I you know I've seen what a Swedish McDonald's looks like. I do not know what a French McDonald's looks like. A Swedish McDonald's. They serve beer. Do they also serve fermented fish? Uh, you know, I wasn't looking at that on the menu. Like, is there is there McFish just like really smelly? I didn't order the McFish when I was there. I had chicken nuggets. <laughs> See, Carl, if I if I could today win the the McMillions, I would pay Greg Kelly to go to different McDonald's around the world to give his all caps crazy person Twitter reviews. I'm sure. I want him to try paneer wrap because I, I I had one of those when I was in India, and the paneer wraps are great. What is that? Well, paneer is essentially it's essentially like goat cheese. Okay, uh, but it's it, but it has properties like tofu. Okay, so it it pretty well absorbs different flavors. So they have a spicy paneer wrap, which is a wrap, as I said, with uh, rolled with this uh, paneer, and it's spicy, and you enjoy it almost like a burrito, and it's amazing. They also have marsala fries, which is there, which is where you take the uh, marsala is just a collection of spices. And they sort of like dust the McDonald's fries with them. And Ooh. they are perfectly spiced, salty fries. And they are so good. Why can't they bring those here? I 
want to petition McDonald's for them to bring them here. We should do that. We should definitely do that. It's cheaper than opening a franchise. It is much cheaper than opening a franchise, as we as we learned on the first podcast. <laughs> well, Carl, that'll do us for July. Uh, July, we send you off. We don't want you back. What? Yep, I I do not want that July back. I'm done. With oh, July. July. Okay, I thought you were talking to everybody else. No, well. You know, you can stay if you want to, because the horrors of August, who knows what will befall us. Mass and Cawthorn's gonna, I don't know, punch a baby. I, I don't even know what's gonna happen in Texas in the next month. It's gonna be crazy. Uh, you're probably gonna roast to death. Uh, yeah, that's a possibility. I wonder yeah. if Ted Cruz is gonna go to Cancun again. It's hot there, too. Yes. Oh, well, I'm sure you can track it. You can meet up with him during the August recess. I'm sure he'll love to meet with you. All right, signing off. Just why can't anybody fucking be normal on this website? Jesus Christ, why can't any of you people be normal? Why is it like this? All the time here on Twitch and Twitter, it's always just some goddamn communist, and somebody comes in and says, well, actually, you know, slavery wasn't that bad. God, just be normal. Please, be normal. Be one of these normal people you're going to deal with in, in everyday life, who isn't out here just kind of just trying to refight the Eastern Front? My God!